HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks, and today we are going to be talking about water. Um, I'm very pleased to be joined on the line by Kate Greenberg. Kate is the Western Water Program Director for the National Young Farmers Coalition. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So... You are located out in Durango, Colorado. Thanks for getting up early to join us on the line today. Um, for folks who aren't uh, super familiar with the kind of Durango and the Colorado agriculture landscape, can you give us some kind of high points? Sure. Well, you know, we're here in the arid west uh, with lots of, of vast spaces between us, um, lots of ranch land. High country grazing, um, we, you know, we grow all kinds of crops from orchards in northern Colorado to um, grass pasture, uh, mixed vegetables, and all kinds of specialty crops here in, in the southwest portion of the state. So a real diversity of things. Now, the National Young Farmer Coalition, um, their work really is to represent, mobilize, and engage uh, the national movement of young farmers here in the U.S. and really um, provide opportunities and push that movement forward, really bringing uh, a higher degree of success to young farmers. And as the Western Water Program Director, what is kind of like your purview? Who are you serving? And can you tell us a little bit more about the role? Sure. Well, the National Young Farmers Coalition, uh, we were founded in 2010 um, by three young farmers out on the East Coast um, in New York. And we we were founded around the idea that um, well, essentially the challenge that land is no longer affordable to the next generation of farmers and ranchers. Yeah. Um, these three young farmers were, were unable to access uh, affordable farmland, 
And that was true in New York. It was also true in other states around the country. And so um, we formed the coalition back then and since then have been advocating for policy reform uh, to enable more young people to enter careers in agriculture and then build successful businesses as well. So out here in the West, uh, land access and water access are inherently interconnected. Uh, so we, you know, to, to be able to address the land access issue in the arid western states, first we need to be talking about water. So water comes from, uh, I feel like we're going to get like a little elementary here, so kind of bear with me guys. But um, again, just to kind of like try and paint a picture of the landscape that you're dealing with, where does water for agriculture come from? So water for agriculture and actually for everyone who uses it in the West, starts in the mountains. Um, I mean, it's, it's a water cycle, so it could really start anywhere in the cycle, but the way we think about it is our snowpack is our storage, is our best storage out here in the West. And then once melt begins, the, the snowpack melts and travels through rivers and streams, and then is diverted onto farms and ranches. And right now we're, we're starting to enter peak melt, um, which means rivers are, are flowing, um, ditches and acequias are flowing, and folks are starting to irrigate. So one of the things that's interesting about farming and, like, the the timing of water is, like, you, those things don't necessarily always align. Like, it might be kind of, like, peak access to water during this time of year, but folks obviously need water throughout the year. So how do how do you kind of manage the timing of access to water? I mean, is it as simple as we think about here in Brooklyn where I just go and like turn the faucet on and the water is there? I mean, how is access to water different for an agriculture producer um, than it might be for someone in a more urban space? It's extremely different. And actually, it's, it's not only different between urban and ag, it's different on every single operation. Uh, so, you know, the farmers who are on surface water, um, they are often... Um, they may be pulling directly from a stream or river. They may be dependent on reservoir storage releases. Uh, their, their storage capacity of the reservoir that they depend on may uh, vary from others nearby and, and thus, you know, essentially um, run out of irrigation before neighbors. Uh, so can I so just really, interrupt you real quick? A, when you said, like, farmers who are um, relying on surface water, what is surface water? So surface water is water that flows, that you can see, essentially, okay. that flows over the land right. um, versus groundwater, which is drawn from aquifers. Got it. Okay. Sorry. I just, yeah. I'm like, it's, I feel like water and water access is one of those things that we talk about in like these very uh, um, abstract ways. And so like, I really want to get a sense of like what we're looking at and thinking about. So I'm like, I'm going to be asking a lot of like very basic questions to just kind of help orient us. So. Um, depending on what type of operation you are, your access to water, the, the, your primary water source is going to be different. Is that right? It's, it's really based on location and okay. where your water right comes from. Um, if it's a storage right, which means if, you're, if your actual water has been sitting in a storage, you know, in a reservoir above your farm or ranch, um, or if you're pulling directly from a river or stream, um, it really varies based on the operations of the system, too, when releases happen, how full the reservoir is. Um, this year in Colorado, so far, it's been a very wet year. Um, so a, a lot of, you know, we have good snowpack, and it looks like a good irrigation season. Um, that does not mean we're out of the drought. And I think the, the other side, sort of the, the more of the macro side of the water access question is, is it moves beyond 
the actual water that's available for a farm. And, you know, the, what, what we talk about um, out here in the West with National Young Farmers Coalition um, is actually the, the access young people have to getting on irrigated land in the first place. Um, so, you know, irrigation management is one thing, but if you can't access that irrigated land because it's unaffordable or because of development pressure, uh, then, you know, the irrigation practices are somewhat moot. Because no one's on that land or because it's not accessible for, like, an entry-level farmer? Uh, both. And, and, and really, you know, I think we're, we're entering um, sort of a, a fork in the road where we, we're at a decision point. Um, so in, in the U.S. as a whole, farmers over 65 outnumber farmers under 35 by 6 to 1. Wow. So we've got a huge age gap. At the same time, we're anticipating that around two-thirds of the working lands in this country, or about 573 million acres, will change hands. We'll need a new manager in the next 20 years. So we've got this huge age gap in the farming population and an immense amount of acreage about to transition. But, you know, this new generation of producers, of young farmers who, are, who want to get into the business, who want this to be their life and their lifestyle, and their livelihood are unable to access all that land. It's, it's unaffordable, and the water that comes with it is unaffordable as well here in the arid west. So that's the, that's the context of what we're working in. Um, you know, if, if we can't get more young people into agriculture and building successful businesses and reducing the barriers to their success, then we're going to face a, a huge crisis in, in land succession. So... I mean, are we not seeing that, you know, farm, like fam these families that have, um, you know, the primary operator is in that kind of 60 plus category, is it just that they're like their children are not deciding to continue farming? So then you have this like, this like land resource with the infrastructure on the property that is just kind of outside the price range that there's not, like there's pressure also within farming families for people to move off the farm? Yes, I'd say that's the case for sure. You know, a, a lot of farmers, older farmers and ranchers, don't necessarily have a younger generation to pass their land and their business onto um, within the family. And so we're seeing a lot of land succession um, templates, essentially, that are uh, outside of the family. So a, a landowner um, who's, you know, seeking a land link partner, for example. Um, so there are programs in various states that link up young and beginning farmers who are seeking land with, you know, farmers who have land and are seeking a, a successor. Um, so, so that's an effort underway and, and something I think that we need to scale up immensely. You know, I think traditionally it's hard to look outside the family to, to pass the farm on, but, you know, so many farmers and ranchers have, have poured their life into building their operations and, and stewarding their land. They want to see it stay in agriculture. Right. So looking for, you know, I guess unique models of, of land succession is, is critical at this point in time to keep this land in production. And you said, you, you know, you spoke a little bit to development pressure. Now, that's something I, I really understand here on the East Coast with, you know, looking at kind of urban sprawl and people wanting to have their, you know, McMansion in a beautiful kind of agriculture landscape outside the city. But what is the what is the development pressure? Is it the same kind of? Um, sprawl and desire for like open space that you know homeowners are looking for, or is that development pressure coming from some other arena? Yeah, it's uh, it's 
fascinating out here. It's actually twofold. It's land and water. So we've, we've got, you know, similar development pressure um, as the East Coast in terms of new development on agricultural land, uh, especially along Colorado's Front Range, as an example. Um, you know, of course, in Colorado, we're a headwater state for the Colorado River Basin, um, which means that uh, we, you know, the water that originates here, we need to send down to lower basin states, so to California, to Arizona, to Nevada, and also to Mexico. And then on the east side of the Continental Divide, we have the Rio Grande headwaters, so, you know, the, the waters flow down through New Mexico and Texas. We've also got a number of other rivers that flow out of the state. So um, when thinking about, you know, water access, it's always within the context of interstate and international water sharing and water compacts. Um, so, you know, in addition to uh, new development on agricultural land, there's also pressure to re be removing water from agriculture for urban development. Uh, so historically, and actually to this day, this still happens, there is a, a process known as buy and dry, which is essentially when water, when, when a piece of property with water rights is purchased by a municipality uh, or other entity that's focused on urban development, or urban growth, mm -hmm. and then the water is actually removed from the land and moved into the, the urban area. Um, this is, it's, has devastating effects on agricultural communities. Uh, it, it dries up the land. It's actually got, you know, some big environmental impacts um, when land is no longer irrigated. There's a, a lot of issues with dust, with weeds. So uh, and then, of course, the economy. There's the agricultural economy um, so, tanks in that scenario. So, so what that would kind of look like essentially is like, let's say, and I'm just going to like use, this is not a real example, but I'm the city of Denver and I'm like, oh, we need more kind of water to serve our population. So I might, as the municipality, like, purchase a piece of land that has a lot of water and essentially I would take that water off that land and and bring it into use for other purposes away from you know where it's located exactly huh. exactly yep so there's sort of a, a remote development pressure in the western states that has to do with water so it's not just a discrete property um, that has a house a new house on it but it's also you know maybe 200 miles away there was a farm that once was a farm and no longer is because the water has now been brought to urban development. So, and that, that's true you know, in, on a larger scale as well. In Colorado, we, we have trans mountain diversions, which divert uh, water from western Colorado, which has very low population relative to the eastern slope, um, and we divert it across the Continental Divide. So there's, uh, you know, that puts pressure on agriculture on both sides of the Continental Divide. So you, you know, we talked about a little earlier in the show um, access to surface water, and then we also talked about access to groundwater. So maybe can we talk a little bit about um, how, you know, what where that split is? Like if you're if you're if you're tucking primarily into groundwater or surface water, are those bringing up different issues, or does that flow kind of happen from the same, like, primary sources? So if the groundwater is stressed, surface water is stressed, or are, how, how are those things, like, kind of relate? Does that make sense? Oh, it does make sense, and it's an extremely complicated question. Awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would need, I think, some PhDs on the line to really get to the core of that answer. Um, well, you know, broad, just, broad strokes, like, I mean, I'm just curious. Strokes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, groundwater and surface water are are connected. I mean, they're, they're all part of the water cycle. With groundwater, uh, 
there are different, I guess, layers um, of groundwater. You might have, um, you know, fossil water, which has essentially been um, untapped for millennia. Mm -hmm. Um, You might have very shallow aquifers. There may be places where um, surface water in stream is visibly connected with groundwater. You can actually see the groundwater, um, the water table, excuse me, rise and and fall based on the stream flow. Um, But it's totally dependent on the the specific location. And that, I think, is a, a critical point for understanding water in the West, is that, you know, we have some some basic concepts um, that connect us, that connect all of our water systems, but really to be able to make any change, it has to be as local as possible because every, every region and every um, ditch, every well, they all are essentially part of an ecosystem that's very particular to that location and to the people managing it in that particular spot. Um, so, we're, you know, in the West, we're actually it's relatively recent to be managing groundwater and surface water conjunctively, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as uh, two pieces of the same system. So I think we have, we have a lot of ways to go to understand the connection. Um, but we are moving into, into a moment in time where it's becoming much more apparent and much more, uh, a part of our management and policymaking to be looking at groundwater conjunctively with surface water management. Well, it's also this thing that we have to kind of collectively as a population decide like, hey, you know, what your neighbor does kind of impacts you and what you do impacts your neighbor. And there's like this kind of we all have to agree to be working towards, uh, you know, a similar space with regards to usage and, and conservation, but also kind of keeping the water supply, you know, clean and safe and and those types of issues. And I'm wondering, you know, what is the state of like, what is incentivizes farmers to, you know, practice, you know, farmers who have kind of hit the barrier where they've gained access to land, they've gained access to water rights. Um, How are they dealing with looking at water conservation in the midst of like just literally trying to run their farm business, um, is there incentive for that? Like, how are how are they being like um, bolstered in those efforts? You know, I think we have a long ways to go for really truly incentivizing conservation. Uh, there are, you know, a number of programs that help support farmers. Um, the Equip program through the NRCS um, can help improve irrigation efficiency on farm. Um, there are, you know, various programs that support soil health management practices, um, but we still have a long way to go, um, and that's true of our federal programs, uh, and it's true at the local level as well. Uh, so, you know, the farmers, um, we surveyed over 400 farmers and ranchers in the West for a recent report called Conservation Generation mm-hmm. um, that was all about young farmers and water in the arid western states. We found that 97% of our survey respondents care about conservation, and 94% are implementing some kind of conservation practice on their farm. Um, At the same time, though, to be able to scale up these efforts, um, there are still some significant barriers standing in the way of scaling conservation. Um, So, you know, we need to increase the incentives. There is a financial burden to conservation and efficiency improvements um, that many farmers are, are willing to make because they care about it, but up to a certain point and beyond that point, if we're going to be scaling up, we need to be looking at, at scaling up our incentives for conservation as well. Um, and, then it, and then it goes back to the land access piece. You know, we've got, we've got these, this generation of farmers who are 
building off of you know what the, the farmers that came before them and and looking to steward the land and water and grow food for local communities but to be able to access that land in the first place um, is still the chief the chief barrier that to access land and water so you know and thinking about increasing conservation I think we need to take a step back and say well who who are the people who will be actually implementing these conservation practices uh, in the decades ahead and how do we you know open the door for them um, so that land and water access piece is is critical well, and how do you get educated on what that even looks like? I mean, is this something that folks are teaching in, you know, land-grant uh, ag programs? Is this type of education happening, like, producer to producer? You know, how, how do you, if you're, like, a young um, farmer and you're kind of looking to engage, evaluate, like, hey, is Colorado going to be the right, you know, place for me? How do you get to know the landscape of the kind of, like, land-water connection? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, there, there's so much that happens farmer to farmer in, at networking events, at mixers, at conferences, um, by word of mouth. Um, there are obviously organizations, too, that are, you know, in this space trying to create a pathway into a career in agriculture. And that's, you know, that's where the National Young Farmers Coalition, we really feel um, that, that we need to do that through policy reform, mm-hmm. through advocating for funding, for affecting those structural changes at the federal and state levels that will, uh, you know, move the needle on, on getting farmers into, onto the land and into the positions of, of business ownership. Um, so, you know, I think all those levels, the grassroots is fundamental, and that's, that's what the Young Farmers Coalition is based on. Uh, we are a grassroots organization. Our members are farmers. Our ch- we have over 30 chapters around the country that are all farmer-led. And, and they, you know, those, those chapters of ours, they ad- address their local needs um, on the day-to-day, but then we also have a farmer advisory council, the National Leadership Committee, that helps you know, drive our policy at the federal level. So, you know, I think making sure that we stay connected to farmers and ranchers, that we connect them to each other um, so they can share this information. And then organizations, you know, we we do the groundwork on the policy side, the Mm -hmm. things that farmers shouldn't be spending their their day-to-day time doing um, to try and alleviate the barriers that they face. Yeah, I mean, essentially you guys are acting as a uh, space to amplify the voices and the concerns and identify like what are some of these barriers. Um, okay, we are going to take just a quick station break to hear a word from our wonderful sponsors. I'm going to ask you guys to hang tight. We are on the line with Kate Greenberg. She is the Western Water Program Director for the National Young Farmers Coalition. We will be right back. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. 
Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. All right, we are back. We are talking water um, with Kate Greenberg. She is the Western Water Program Director for the National Young Farmers Coalition. Um, I'm wondering, Kate, if you can give us a little sense, you know, one of the things that is kind of at the forefront of folks' mind here at 2016 um, is, you know, tech, is innovation, is that we're uh, going to come up with solutions for problems like this um, before they become real threats. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a lay of the land with regards to inner innovation and, and tech fixes, tech hacks, measurement tools as they relate to water. Sure, yeah, I think that's that's certainly a, a growing field and it's something of interest to young farmers in particular. Um, it, you know, we right now we're still not measuring a lot of our water use in the West. Um, there are efforts to, to measure on-farm and off-farm uh, water use, especially as it relates to soil health. And I think, you know, this is a, a place where, where we're trying to really influence the water policy discussion is that, you know, technology is going to be key. Efficiency improvements are critical to meeting, you know, the water scarcity um, impacts ahead. But at the same time, there needs to be a, a connection to the soil, right, and to the, the natural processes of a farm. And I think those two together are actually, you know, where the, the heart of innovation actually lies. Uh, so there's a, a huge movement going on in soil health right now and, and recognizing the role that soil health plays in um, so many things, you know, whether that be increasing the biodiversity of a farm, um, increasing yield and productivity of a farm while reducing inputs, um, carbon sequestration, water conservation, um, the list goes on. And pairing, you know, a focus on soil health with an interest in um, experimenting with new technology, um, you know, farm hacking, uh, ways of monitoring the moisture on your farm, what comes off on the farm, what leaves the farm, um, and how you can improve your management practices with soil, with water, uh, you know, based on what kind of feedback that technology gives you. I think there's a uh, huge opportunity to explore solutions to water scarcity through that, that nexus of, of soil health and water management. But it's not, uh, you know, as simple as just kind of like Googling and like buying a couple of quick tools and you're, we're like, hey, we're there. It's understood. Um, we're kind of in the like emerging space there or, I mean, as far as kind of, impacts that you're actually like seeing where do you where do you get a sense that we kind of are yeah i think we're in a great place of experimentation okay. um yeah. you know there's so many so many pressures coming down there's there's water scarcity because of so many reasons you know there's drought there's the impacts of climate change in the west there's increasing development pressure um, and increasing population there's all these things putting pressure on on ag producers on farmers to to experiment. And, you know, I think something that's often missed when we talk about farmers, you know, off the farm um, is, is 
what innovators they are already on the day to day. I mean, you know, farmers and ranchers are out in the field every single day observing what's going on, thinking about how to do things better, but they only get one chance a year to experiment, you know, just based on the seasons. So I think there's, um, I, I, I want to be sure that, you know, we, we talk about that, that, you know, farmers have always been sort of pushing the edge of, well, wh- how can I do this better? How can I approach my operation to make it more productive, to make my land healthier, to treat my water better? Um, I think, you know, young farmers are, they have decades ahead of them to be um, building their careers as farmers, to be tweaking their, their management and their stewardship. Um, and, and I think it's critical that we support that innovation and creativity, that we, we incentivize it rather than, um, you know, push farmers away from it. Yeah, I think also understanding the timetable that you're working with. So the reputation that farmers have um, sometimes as being kind of like tied to old-fashioned ways or adverse to change, um, you would say that's like not not earned? I'd say if you are creative, if you're innovative, if you like to experiment, if you like to work hard, if you love a good challenge and are excited by the unexpected, um, you should get into farming. I mean, it's, I think it's an exciting time. There's tons of challenges. Uh, I think, you know, especially with water scarcity in the West, I think young farmers and ranchers have a huge opportunity to actually be at the forefront of finding solutions, uh, and solutions that work for agriculture, that keep land in production, that, you know, boost local and regional food production, that increase water conservation, uh, and that bring in new technology and innovation into the space of, of water scarcity. Um, I want to shift gears somewhat dramatically, and I'm not sure you're going to be able to speak to this topic, but I want to ask, because you are based in Colorado, um, you know, with the the recent kind of legalization of um, marijuana, has that impacted um, your work from an agriculture or water standpoint? Does that, like, support things that you guys are doing already? Is there any intersection happening there or not really? You know, it's it's really not something we work on. Um, you know, focusing mo- mainly on on federal reform, it, we can't. You know, it's not a place we would really go. It's obviously um, happening here, and you know, there are farmers um, growing. You know, growing and using water, and it's of course part of the agricultural scene. Um, but it's yeah, it's not part of our our focus. Yeah, I mean, essentially, kind of like not going to get your bang for the buck if you're looking at really driving a national movement. The not not quite there yet, I guess. Right, not quite there yet. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, so Kate, we have a couple of minutes left. I'm wondering, you know, for folks like myself who are located here in Brooklyn and, and listeners out there across the U.S. and around the world. Um, you know, if we're not going to uh, pursue a career directly in agriculture, what's the what's the best way for us to continue to like learn about and engage in these issues, support your work, um, you know, in a in a small way, in a large way? Like, where where would you direct us? Well, there are so many ways to get involved. Um, you, you know, wherever you are, you can always become a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Uh, we, you know, offer membership for $20 a year or $5 a month sustaining. You can go to youngfarmers.org um, to become a member. You can get involved in policy. We're always looking for people, you know, whether or not you're farming, um, we need everybody in support of young farmers to be speaking up. So you can always work with us to, you know, meet with legislators um, to help on policy reform and advocacy issues. 
you know, joining a local chapter, helping young farmers in your area organize, going to the places where young farmers are selling their products, often farmers markets or local restaurants, so supporting them with your dollars. Uh, you know, in the West, thinking about water conservation, if you're not a farmer, you're still very much connected to farmers because, you know, we are all connected by the water we share, regardless of where we live and where we eat, the water um, that grows our food, the water that comes out of our taps, and then the food that travels around the country as well. You know, it's, it's what connects us together as eaters, as growers, um, as members of, of a community. So I think having that consciousness, that awareness, and meeting your local farmers, seeing how you can get involved locally, those are all pieces of the equation and ways to participate. Yeah, and I know um, folks can visit the website, youngfarmers.org. You can download the report that Kate was referencing here on the site and get a lot more information about the work that the coalition is doing um, across the U.S. in your area specifically and, and, of course, become a member there. Kate, any other kind of um, resources that you look to out, outside um, for kind of inspiration, for nourishment? I mean, you're, you're dealing with an issue that is, I think, on one hand, you know, if I'm in your shoes, I'm feeling a little, like, overwhelmed and there's so much to know and, and things feel very, like, urgent. Um, and at the other hand, you know, I'm sure on the day-to-day -day you get to meet inspiring people and, um, you know, see smaller kind of, like, bites of success. But when you're needing to kind of, like, bolster yourself, like, what are your kind of self-care practices or your go-to reading or, like, um, eating? Or how do you kind of stay uh, optimistic and, and upbeat to do the work that you do? I actually get on a farm <laughs> and go work. I think uh, just working and, and, and not thinking too much <laughs> is really helpful in, in all of this. You know, if it's uh, when you're thinking about drought and climate change and, you know, 40 million people relying on the Colorado River system, um, it can get, you know, pretty heady. And, and um, getting out in the field and, and getting your hands dirty and helping irrigate and, you know, harvest food, I think, is, is the most grounding thing you could do. And for folks out there who want to get a job like yours, what should they do? <laughs> um, you know, just, I guess, follow your passion. I think there's, or create something, just start something of your own. Um, I think there's so much opportunity and, and, and really agriculture has a huge future ahead. And it's just up to us right now how we, how we want to help craft it. So I, I just encourage everybody to get involved. Yeah, the best. I feel like I always say that to people. Like the best way to get involved is just get involved, guys. Just do something. <laughs> like, don't overthink it. Just show up. Start there. Well, Kate, thank you so much. Um, I've definitely learned a ton. I definitely recommend folks checking out that report and and following some of the things that you outlined as ways to kind of continue to stay engaged. I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Thanks so much. Uh, once again, that website is youngfarmers.org. Definitely check them out. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks. You can find me on uh, Twitter or Instagram. I'm Erin underscore Fairbanks. Uh, I would recommend following the Heritage Radio Network feeds. It's Heritage underscore Radio. You can get a really great insight into all the different shows we do. And if you're interested in learning more about some of the young farmers um, that Kate was talking about, definitely check out our weekly show, The Greenhorns. Every week, they profile a, a different new young farmer. And so lots of inspiration and stories to be found there. 
Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.